the Ask NT Write Anything podcast. Welcome, welcome. I am Justin Briley, sitting down with theologian and prolific author Tom Wright to ask your questions again. Tom uh, publishes under Tom Wright in his more popular level stuff. N.T. Wright, for his more academic books, he answers to both titles. Uh, The show brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and N.T. Wright Online. Today, Tom's going to be tackling your questions on how we should treat the Bible. Inerrancy, infallibility, sola scriptura, and does the Bible go far enough on issues like slavery? So if you'd like more episodes like these, updates, or want to ask a question yourself for a future program, do register at the website, askntwrite.com. By the way, if you register now, you'll also get access to bonus video content. We've got ones of Tom answering questions on speaking in tongues and the rapture only available if you subscribe to the newsletter there at askntwrite.com. Plus, anyone signing up to the newsletter by the end of March also gets automatically entered into a prize draw for one of three signed copies of Tom's new translation of scripture, The Bible for Everyone. He's translated the whole of the New Testament and John Goldingay, Old Testament scholar, has done the Old Testament. So sign up now for the bonus videos, the prize draw, the newsletter, and of course, to ask a question if you want to. It's all at askntwrite.com. And before the end of today's podcast, we'll have another musical treat for you. So do make sure to listen right through the whole of today's episode. Well, it's time for our regular sit-down with Tom. Uh, we've got the coffee, pastries, the bananas ready for um, fueling us as we go into another podcast. Um, we've been arranging all of these podcasts by theme thus far. Uh, we're going to talk today specifically about uh, doctrines and scripture, specifically in the broader sense. And uh, I'm looking forward to digging into that. You've been a lifelong reader of the Bible, Tom. But before we, we dig into that, you do read other books as well. Sure. Um, what have you been enjoying recently in terms oh, of... Well, I, I do read quite a bit of poetry, and I've always enjoyed po- poetry ever since I was a boy. And recently, I've had the privilege of getting to know an extraordinary new book of poems, or a, 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 a single poem, but in a sequence of poems, by the Irish poet Michal O'Shiel. Uh, and the poem is called The Five Quintets, obviously echoing Eliot's four quartets, but quite different and quite long. And it's a, it's a, an extraordinary celebratory cultural history of the last four or five hundred years. How we got into modernity, how modernity has gone horribly wrong and how it can be coming out the other side, which is a wonderful narrative. And these five about literature, art and music, about economics, about politics, about science, about philosophy and theology imagine one person having all that in his head (laughs) and imagine them writing brilliant sonnets and haikus and terzia rima and so on pulling it all together in this rich tapestry michal is a wonderful irish poet an extraordinary human being and i i uh, helped to host him reading his poems in st andrews in edinburgh um a week or two ago Uh, and uh, this this poem i think people are going to be studying it in a hundred years time as as an extraordinary representative of of the high culture of the early 21st century Can you give us the name of the poem again? Uh, the Five Quintets. The Five Quintets. Yeah. There you go. I'll make sure there's a link from today's yes, good, podcast good, to Michael good, um, good. and to the uh, Mich- Mikhail. Mi- Mikhail. Mikhail. Well, um, well uh, I, I think he pronounces it Michal. Okay. Michal or Shiel. He's a native Irish speaker. I mean, he speaks about ni- literally 19 languages like Japanese and Icelandic and goodness knows what. Gosh. He's an extraordinary, <laughs> brilliant linguist, brilliant man. Well, look, um, yeah. from that Michal to another 
Michael in Ireland, um, who is, I, I imagine, not the same. But um, <laughs> in any case, the first question on scripture uh, mm. for today's podcast comes from Michael in Ireland, who says, can you explain what you think is wrong with the American view of inerrancy? And if you wouldn't use that terminology, how would you speak about the trustworthiness of <laughs> yeah. the Bible? I do prefer the word trustworthiness. And I, I take quite a pragmatic view that um, I really do believe that the Bible is the book God wanted us to have, and he wanted us to have it the way it is. And uh, at the same time, because the Bible is written in Greek and Hebrew, Christianity was a translating faith in the beginning. Uh, Jesus almost certainly spoke most of the time in Aramaic, but we have his words in Greek. So it's as though, yes, this is the original text from one point of view, but it's already making its way out into the world. And the point is not to look back at it and say, can we analyze this by some scientific test and prove that every syllable is true on some modern pragmatist uh, account of truth? The important thing is to live within the narrative and see what it does. And the trustworthiness is something that we don't put in our pockets and say, I've got this infallible scripture, so I'm all right. It's, oh my goodness, if this story is the real story, then what's it doing in me and through me and what's it doing in and through the church for the world and as soon as you turn around and say um shall we call it inerrant or infallible or in this or in that i don't like these words <laughs> beginning in, with the letters in um then it seems to me you're getting trapped in a defensive mode which is precisely what the bible doesn't want you to do mm. now i know why that happened it seems <laughs> it seems to me it happened because at the time of the Reformation, the question was scripture or tradition, and the Reformers said God's word, God's word, God's word, and so the sense of the Bible itself confronts the uh, many Christian traditions and says, no, there's something more to learn here, and then in the uh, 17th and 18th century particularly, various rationalist movements and deist movements were trying to say, no, 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 we, we will work out what's true by the light of reason. And if the Bible happens to fit with that, so mm. be it. And if it doesn't, we'll jettison it. Thomas Jefferson famously, you know, got rid of chunks mm. of the of the Bible. Um, and so people said, no, 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 we've got to hang on to the Bible. And then because that happened within a rationalist turn within Enlightenment philosophy, people wanted to say, we are going to see this as a rationalist thing. If there is a good God who wants his people to know the truth, he must have given us a true revelation. So therefore, since the Bible is obviously that revelation, it must be absolutely true. Now, I always worry when people argue must, 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 mm. must, that if there is a God who he must have done this, because actually... How do we know about God? We know about God by looking at Jesus. Yes, and we know about Jesus by looking at Scripture. But Scripture presents us with a Jesus who doesn't give us truth as a commodity that we can put in our pockets and possess. He gives us this living truth, which is utterly reliable, but which uh, is not ours to possess. It's, it's ours to be driven by out into the world to do what he wants. So, I have a very high view of Scripture. If mm. I find myself saying in some exegetical argument, at this point, Paul or John or whoever seems to have got it wrong, then red lights start to flash. I think, um, let's just put this one on hold. Okay. Let's go around the tracks and see. Mm. may well be me that's getting it wrong, mm. and I've seen that happen with many scholars and, and so on, and I've had to revise my own views about things again and again. My understanding may be wrong. Let's work with the text and see. But the text is there for us to work with. So for me, saying Scripture is infallible doesn't shut down questions. It opens them up. That's the difference. Mm. So much 
of the rather narrow American fundamentalism shuts down the questions. The Bible is infallible. Now, sit down, shut up, and we know the answers. The answer, no, if this is the book God wanted us to have, and, and all questions it, are on. I, I suppose in my experience as well, the people who have concerns about inerrancy are, are asking questions from a very specifically Western yeah. modern viewpoint yeah, 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 about absolutely. the way texts should absolutely. be read absolutely. And, and not necessarily taking them as they were meant to be written. In, in a, a, absolutely. In a, in a and the very notion of truth itself um, is much more complex than, 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 than we usually realise. You know, people think truth, i.e., did it happen or didn't it happen? Is it true in that sense? Well, that's the but, question essentially that Dan in Illinois oh, asks, oh. Um, who asks a similar question about biblical inerrancy, but says if the Bible is the word of God, can it err? If so, how do we know what parts are true? Yeah, well, it depends what you mean by err and depends how you read the different texts and obvious examples that when the psalmist says God has smoke coming out of his nostrils, we say, well, this is poetry. This means that God is a living God and he's active and he gets cross when bad things happen in his world, etc. Fine, but I don't think that God is a funny old gentleman with, with smoke coming out of his nostrils. Um, but then what about Genesis 1 and 2? What about um, so many um, passages in Scripture which many people have said, this is a kind of poetry, this is the only way that granted that culture, that you can talk wisely about creation. And particularly if Genesis 1 is seen as the construction of a temple-like world, a heaven and earth world with an image at the, at the heart of it, mm. then this isn't a scientific account. This isn't sort of on a par with what somebody in a laboratory in Harvard or Cambridge or something might say about the Big Bang or what preceded the Big Bang. This is a way of saying um, this is what it means. This is what the world as we know means because this is how God made it. And the attempt to say, therefore, six days of creation, that's often where it comes down to, isn't it? Is it a problem if there are what appear to be, on the surface at least, simply factual um, inaccuracies. So I, I'm going back to Bart Ehrman, who we talked about in a previous podcast. I remember when I interviewed him about his journey gradually away from Christianity. He said the thing that stopped him being a sort of an evangelical sort of inerrantist was when he first got marked on a paper trying to defend a particular verse in Mark mm-hmm. about whether the bread offered was under the priest so-and-so or so-and-so. Oh, 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 yes, yes, and, yes. Uh, and his tutor simply said, what if Mark got it wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sort of suddenly <laughs> things came tumbling down for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, what's what's going on there? Is it a problem if Mark did happen to misattribute yeah, yeah. the the person who was the priest in yes, charge yes, at the yes, time, whatever yes, it might yes. have been? Yes. I, I've never felt that as a problem. And maybe this is a deficiency in me. But um, uh, I think there's two things going on because I've met again and again uh, scholars who've said, oh, well, at this point, Paul just had indigestion and didn't really <laughs> quite mean what he... And I've had really famous scholars actually say that. Oh, right. well, the, the, the Paul, Paul... He was just having what, an off day. He was yeah. just not concentrating at this point. And I found over and over again, and I've been studying Paul, obviously, for, for nearly 50 years, that then... Ten years down the track, some scholar reading the Dead Sea Scrolls or doing an, a fresh take on something in Paul will come back and say it really looks as though at this point what Paul is actually meaning is such and such. Or He got he, it right after all. He got it right after all. And so I want to say just cool down here. Mm-hmm. And the quick, oh, it's wrong, really isn't as easy as that. Okay. Another one which people quote again and again is um, uh, the census at the beginning of Luke. Oh, yes. um, and 
and, and Luke is often translated to say um, this was the first census at the time when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Let me just check what, in my own New Testament <laughs> yes. translation... Tom is now referring to is, his recently yeah. released um, yeah, New Testament, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bible is, for Everyone, along with John Goldinger, who did yeah, the Old yeah, Testament yeah. hit. But, um, um, and uh, here in Luke 2.2, 2, it says, this was the first census before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I didn't make that up. Uh-huh. Um, the word, the Greek word protos, and other scholars have pointed this out as well, but not a lot of people actually have cottoned on. The Greek word protos with a genitive can mean before rather than the first. So I say this was the first census, but it was before the one when... And, 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 and the, just to, to, the, the, to the, close yeah, the circle, the, what, the, what's the, the point problem in, that's been pointed out The problem out here before? is that from Josephus, the Jewish mm. historian, we know when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and that wouldn't square with what appears to be Luke's chronology. Now, many people have, have fastened on that mm. as part of their case that the birth stories were all just made up later and, and got wrong. Of course, it's possible that Josephus got it wrong, but that, that's, another, that's another question. And I think, again, we, we need to lighten up in terms of, for instance, the order of events, um, that, that when Jesus comes to Jerusalem and he curses the fig tree, then goes in and, and comes out and it's, it's, it's withered away. Mark arranges that story one way. Matthew mm. arranges that story another. Does that matter? For goodness sake, it really well, doesn't there's matter. There's been some interesting yeah. work done on this, I think, by Mike Licona, who, um, oh, yeah. working off Richard yeah. Burridge, really, right, um, right. to say that was the way they wrote biography all the time in those and, days. They rearranged their material. But it's the way we write biography well, as well. As we've mentioned There before. are many, yes. many biographies today. I, I just picked up a, a new book on the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, and it arranges quite a lot of the material thematically. So here's Michael Ramsey dealing with the South African problem, and that cuts to and fro across chronology. And then mm. we come back, and mm. here's Michael Ramsey dealing with um, synodical reform or whatever. Well, if, if you haven't seen it, I do recommend Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Mike Lacone, oh, right. There's a right. fascinating study looking at uh, various aspects of Plutarch and oh, yes, where he yes, does yes, exactly yes. the same telescoping yes. or yes, spotlighting yes, yes, and yes. lots of other And, and this, this would only be a problem if you're an 18th century rationalist who thinks that the Bible was just a transcript of the videotape that somebody was running when Jesus was walking around Galilee. And clearly that's not the case, um, because actually that isn't how anyone does history or biography. It's always done by selection and arrangement. There's no other way to write. I mean, it's a similar question here, but I don't know if there's something you want to pick out from this. Blaze in Ripley asks, do you believe the Bible is the infallible word of God? Another in word. If so, what evidence is there to support that this is a perfect book inspired by God? How can the book of Psalms, for instance, be the word of God if it's written to God by man? Um, I mean, you've obviously covered various aspects of this. I suppose the question I will draw out then from Blaise's question is, is how should, what terminology should Mm, we mm, use mm, in the Bible mm, if we're mm, not going to mm. say necessarily infallible, inerrant? What what do we say? And and you see, in in the Bible itself, the phrase the word of God doesn't refer to the Bible. Um, The the, the primary word of God is Jesus himself, according Mm. to John. Um, And when the risen Jesus is commissioning his disciples at the end of Matthew. He doesn't say all authority in heaven and earth is given to the books you chaps are going to go and write. He says all authority is given to me. So when we talk about authority of scripture, as I do, then this must be a shorthand way of talking about God's authority vested in Jesus, exercised somehow through this book. 
But the danger is then, again, because we live in a modern Western rationalist world, we think that this means that the Bible sits on the shelf, and when you have a question, you can go and look up page 123, there's a correct answer to it. Now, there are some things where you can look up and find answers like that. But the questioner is quite right that I, I remember my, my late mother saying to me once, David always seemed to have trouble with his pronouns. I said, what on earth do you mean? <laughs> so when we read the Psalms, sometimes he says you, and sometimes he says I, and sometimes he says he. Is he talking about God or to God, or is it God talking to him? And I think that is part of the love poetry of God and God's people. And we then read that not because it's sort of simplistically a word from God to us, but because it's a word which the Holy Spirit has caused to bubble up out of the hearts of the psalmists, God's poetic people, which then we can inhabit so that we can join in that conversation. Because when you think Trinitarianly, then you're not just thinking about a top-down, God-inspiring scripture, and here Mm. it is, Um, You know, Paul's letters are quite clearly by somebody called Paul, who is a very different character from, say, Matthew or Mm. Luke. Um, Jeremiah is a very different character from Isaiah, etc., etc., etc. God, and this is the principle of incarnation, God works by his spirit through the specificities of these human beings. Mm, mm. And, and, uh, you know, I would much rather somebody said, basically, this book is infallible, meaning I can utterly rely on it, Mm. than somebody who said, oh, it's just full of old stories, or oh, it's just a library, and you can take and pick and choose what you like. Because I have seen again and again, when people start saying that, the bits that they choose not to get into are the bits that really might make a difference in their lives, which perhaps they don't (laughs) want to make. And so I'm, I'm wary of that myself. Are there bits that I'm ignoring? Um, so, so there are pastoral questions as well as kind of abstract yes. theological ones. The Ask NT Write Anything podcast is brought to you by Premier in partnership with SBCK and NT Write Online. SBCK are Tom's UK publisher. They've recently released his very exciting project, The Bible for Everyone. It's a fresh translation of the whole of Scripture by John Goldingay and Tom Wright. A fresh, insightful and highly readable translation. I've been using it myself and Tom's been using it in today's episode. Uh, We've an exclusive podcast listener discount on it. Go to sbckpublishing.co.uk, look for The Bible for Everyone and then simply enter the discount code NT right. That's no spaces and all caps. Again, the Bible for everyone at sbckpublishing.co.uk and to discount code NT right. No spaces and all caps to get 20% off for podcast listeners. Sometimes this idea of um, sola scriptura comes up, you know, we should only rely on the Bible for getting our, yes, our, yes, tr- yes, um, yes. you know, our understanding of God and so on. Jeffrey in Newquay, Cornwall asked, do you think the Reformation threw the baby out with the bathwater with sola scriptura, so- solely concentrating on the Bible and dismissing hundreds of years of church tradition? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, because, of course, sola scriptura goes with solus Christus, uh, Christ alone. Mm. Um and the Bible witnesses to Christ, and it's a little bit more complicated than most quotations of Sola Scriptura would would envisage. And if I can refer to my book, Scripture and the Authority of God, I've tried to tease out there much more fully how the authority of Scripture actually works in practice. Because, you know, most of the Bible is narrative. How can a narrative be authoritative? Well, answer is, God is saying, this is my story with the world, 
It came to its climax in Jesus, and by the Spirit, I'm calling you to join in with this story. Now, that's a different thing from going and looking up right answers. There are right answers. Um, We have to struggle for them, but they come in the context of the whole story and the whole life. So the danger with the Reformation, yes, was that there was a sense that the last few hundred years had really got it horribly wrong. However, the reformers, Luther, Calvin, uh, Thomas Cranmer, and Tyndale in this country, they weren't throwing out all tradition. They read the fathers. They read Chrysostom. Mm. They particularly read Augustine. Um, and they were very concerned to retrieve all the wisdom of the first five centuries. But they did kind of leave a gaping hole from roughly five or 600 through to their own time, which is an odd way to look mm. at church history. And that was kind of a bit of overkill because they saw the medieval church as having got it horribly wrong with odd theories about the mass with odd theories about purgatory so in order to get rid of that they said we will go back to the beginning now see i say again and again that even the early fathers missed out some of the key dynamics that are there actually in the new testament itself and i get stick from some theologians for saying that but of course i want tradition i want reason but we have to go back and back to scripture because that is what witnesses to christ and it's in jesus the messiah that we see the face of the living god let's go to this one from pete in oxford who says Do you see anything wrong in the so-called trajectory hermeneutic approach to Scripture? Is there, say, anything wrong with asserting that Paul didn't go far enough when he fails to condemn slavery? Conversely, does Philip go too far in baptising the Ethiopian eunuch without checking with the apostles in Jerusalem? (laughs) So so (laughs) first of all, what do you you take um, our question of Pete to mean by trajectory hermeneutic? Yes, I I think he's saying that the, the, the New Testament is the starting off on a line and maybe we have to go further down that line. Cautiously, yes, there is a danger there, because as soon as you say, well, they didn't go far enough and I want to go here, mm-hmm. then we can that's, use it for our own agendas that's open season for all kinds of agendas. And you have to be very, very clear of your ground in creation and new creation, in covenant and new covenant, all focused on Jesus, in order even to begin down that line. However, I do think that, for instance, the abolitionist movements in the 18th and 19th century were applying radically to society things that are embedded in Scripture. After all, the Exodus narrative is the great narrative which says we know God as the slave-freeing God. Um, That is unthinkable in the first century um, in terms of uh, sort of Wilberforce agenda. It's as unthinkable as it would be if we were to preach from the pulpit today that we all ought to stop using motor cars and aeroplanes and all ought to ride on horses and donkeys instead. You know, yeah, you can preach that if you like, but your congregation are going to roll their eyes and say which planet he's living on. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, similar things could be said. We, we know that these are damaging to our health and to the planet, but we go on doing them anyway. Um, and so, we, we, yes, you can follow things through, but you do have to be very careful. And do I wish Philip had checked with the apostles? No, absolutely not. Philip has authority to do this. The church has always taught, actually, that baptism in the name of the Trinity is baptism. Right. Um, even if you're not, you know, a nurse in a hospital can baptize mm-hmm. a baby. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to be ordained to do that. Um, so overall, though, you're not opposed to the idea that we, we that um, there can be starting points. In the, in the case of, for instance, Paul 
doesn't outright condemn slavery in his day and age. But obviously, yeah, he, yeah. But he, he puts kind a, of changes the terms. He, he puts a time bomb beside it. I mean, the letter to Philemon is an extraordinary little time bomb, completely changing the dynamics of masters and slaves. Um, but as I say, in his day, you've got to do this now, and then maybe others will do that then. Mm. Um, and cultures change and different challenges change as as you go along. So I'd want to know where the questioner was going to be going with that because right. it could be some very interesting conversations. Mm. And obviously the church has wrestled with that in terms of, for instance, should Christians fight in, in the military? Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's been a major bone of contention um, because probably the, the most mm, pressing one in our day and age is sexuality but that's yeah, probably yeah. a conversation well, for another time yes but there i would say i think the new testament writers would say go back to the notion of creation a good creation being reborn that's the framework it's a first mm. article question i.e the three articles of the creed god the father son the holy spirit this is about the goodness of creation and the redemption of that good creation and, and that's that's the, okay. the the starting point well, maybe we'll get a chance to open up those issues in, in more depth another time. I, I just wanted to finish with asking my own question, which is um, when it comes to Scripture, a lot of people, in terms of the way they approach it, um, will go to something like Second Timothy 3. You know, mm-hmm. All Scripture is God-breathed yeah, yeah, and yeah, useful yeah, yeah. for uh, rebuke, correction, training in righteousness and so on. Um, some people see that as a mandate to say, yes, you see, inerrancy, infallibility. Others say, don't be daft. That's mm-hmm. not what it's saying. What, where, what do you think Second Timothy 3 is saying? Well, for about a start, scripture? it's not talking about the New Testament no. because there isn't a New it's Testament. It's part of the point. New Testament. Uh, yes, yes. yes. He, that's talking about um, Israel's scriptures. Right. And Israel's scriptures, um, of course, from a Christian point of view, are the story so far, which we now know reached its climax in Jesus the Messiah. So, yes. Um, basically you need that whole scriptural narrative the frustrating thing to me is many many people who have banged on about um, second timothy three and all scripture etc but don't take scripture seriously as the old testament insists that the good creation is going to be redeemed and renewed by god and many many christians who take second timothy uh, the way they do actually think that that's just a metaphor for a platonic spiritual salvation and i want to say sorry all scripture is given by god jolly well take it seriously please <laughs> it's been brilliant spending some more time with you. <laughs> thank you uh thank you so much for 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 what we've been able to do so far in this uh, special podcast series uh, let me remind you if you're listening and you'd like to let other people know about it, it always helps to rate and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it via your podcast software gets it out to more people and don't forget you can ask questions yourself or leave comments on some of the issues we've been debating thus far via the website get registered there at asknt.right.com until next time tom thank you so much for being thank you thank you for your hospitality Thank you for being with us today, but don't go away just yet as Tom is pulling out the guitar once again in a moment. If you want to see some exclusive videos of Tom in unplugged mode, do go to the video section on our website, askntright.com. Today, Tom was reading from his own translation of the New Testament in the Bible for Everyone. We've three signed copies to give away. It's a hefty old prize, I can assure you as well. Just make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter and we'll pick the winners from among our subscribers at the end of March. Signing up also gets you access to bonus video content, the fortnightly newsletter. It means you get the link to ask a question too. And we're taking your questions right now for further episodes of the podcast going to be recording again very soon with tom so do go to www.asknt.right.com and get yourself subscribed
Well, we got to that point where we have a little extra something for you. Uh, NT Wright Unplugged, the sessions. Um, we're going to be hearing a song you actually wrote with famous biologist Francis Collins, a devout Christian himself, of course, and uh, founder of the Biologos Institute in America. Um, tell us how this song came together, Tom. It was an extraordinary moment. I was in a conference in Rome, actually. Uh, my wife went shopping while I was in a conference um, session and it was snowing. It was February and she came back to the hotel in a cab and the cabbie serenaded her all the way back with singing Beatles songs and actually tried to sell her a CD of his own, own singing. And so she came back in on a high. I've just been, you know, wonderful, this, this cabbie. And, and one of the songs was Paul McCartney's Yesterday. And so I went off to the next session of the conference with the tune of Yesterday in my head. But then I thought... I'm about to go to this Biologos meeting in uh, wherever it was, New York, I think, or somewhere. Um, and for some reason, I realized that the word Genesis works the same way that yesterday worked. So I scribbled down in the conference center. I wasn't paying attention, really, to what was going on. Um, uh, one or two possible verses. And I emailed them that night to Francis Collins. And I said, Francis, ignore this if it's if it's silly or you don't want to, but what about it? And within an hour or two, he'd emailed me back another verse or two. And then we just worked on it together. And then when we got together, we, we it had its premiere at that Biologos. And he and I have done it. I have to say, Francis is a much better guitarist <laughs> than me. So he he actually gets it right. And I just sort of strum along in the background. But it's it's been kind of fun. Okay, let's hear it. Then. Okay. Genesis Earth and heaven in a cosmic kiss Evolution must have been like this Oh, I believe in Genesis And then the verse that Francis wrote DNA Shaping creatures from the dust and clay Double helix in the Milky Way Oh, Genesis means DNA how he made it all 14 billion years ago wisdom truth and love for he spoke and it was so genesis even adam in a cosmic bliss in a paradise we all now miss Oh, I believe in Genesis In a trice Didn't listen to divine advice Einstein wondered whether God plays dice We're trapped within a world of vice Why they had to fall, I don't know It doesn't say they did something wrong and they've longed for God's new day. Genesis, royal priesthood in a holy bliss. New Jerusalem will be like this. Oh, I believe in Genesis. You've been listening to the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts. Oh, goodness. Very good. Oh, goodness. Very good.